Today's episode of Insufficient Facts is brought to you by Super Ordinary, an audio drama about a young girl who discovers she has superpowers. There's only one problem. They're connected to her panic attacks. Stick around at the end of the episode for a sneak peek of the show. Welcome, everyone. If you are listening to this podcast, you have joined us for our first episode ever of Insufficient Facts, which is a new podcast that we're bringing to you that is a science-based podcast centered around some folks here in the greater Los Angeles area who are graduate students. So we are here to bring you kind of an alternative perspective to science, what it's like to be a career scientist or on our way to our career scientist making our way. Um, my name is Christiane, and I'm here with Raquel and Kyle. So today we're going to have a format that's a little bit different from the following episodes. We're going to introduce ourselves and kind of give you an insider's perspective on how we decided to pursue a career in academia, how we decided to pursue a career in science. Um, I'm going to start us off today. So again, my name is Christiane. I'm going to leave off my last name because it's too long and I just like to go by Christiane. I, I uh, as a little anecdote, I have some. I'm teaching. I'm a TA this quarter, and so from the very get go, I with my name, I always tell my students, just call me Christian. Don't try like anything else. That's how I sign off my emails. I'm like, no miss, no doctor, nothing, just Christian. Miss Jockamet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Did I say that right? No, but like, <laughs> that no one does, which is the whole point. And so, I got an email the other day saying, um, addressed to Miss. Jacquem, which is like half of my last name. So they got everything completely wrong. They got the name wrong. They got the miss, which I also explicitly didn't ask for. So it's it's when they those, tried. Yeah, they tried. I, it was a polite email nonetheless. So I appreciated that. But yes, yeah, so Christian is is how I would prefer everyone to call me going forward. Um, I am a second-year graduate student at UCLA in the Ecology and Evolutionary Biology Department, which means that I like to study big questions, like how did things end up looking like they look over time? What is kind of the driving forces between why certain things have certain traits or certain appearances? How these changes over time are impacting their ability to do certain things? So just these really big, like, long-time scale questions. Um, and more specifically, what I'm looking at is essentially our, our best man's best friend, right? The domestic dog. Um, the domestic dog is really interesting because we have over many years bred it to have really variable skull shape, right? You have these dogs like the pugs and French bulldogs, which are adorable and have these super, super squished faces. Um, and then you have things like sight hounds, like greyhounds and borzois, which have these really, really long, really narrow skulls. And all of this has been bred into dogs over a really short period of time, which no one's really studied how that's impacted their ability to smell because there's a lot of structures in the skull related to sense of smell. And obviously dogs, we rely on them for their sense of smell. First and foremost, they have kind of their, our, our favorite example of something that loves to sniff and is always sniffing and follows their nose, right? That's all about dogs. But we don't really understand how breeding them to have these extreme skull shapes might be impacting their sense of smell. So I've kind of, that's basically an overview of my research. But that's as far as I want to go into that. I'm going to kind of take a step back and take us through my personal journey into science. Like why, how did I end up deciding that a PhD was for me? Because I will say that as a, as a child... I certainly never envisioned myself getting a PhD. That came very late in my life, like probably end of undergrad is when I actually started considering it. So senior year, actually even more seriously is when I started considering it is when I was working in a lab after I had graduated with my bachelor's degree. So it doesn't. It wasn't really anything that I actually even considered I was smart enough to pursue for a long time. Same. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, that imposter syndrome, it's, it's, it's killer. But, you know, luckily I've had um, some really supportive people in my life who have encouraged me to go after the, the PhD, which has been really fantastic. But um, I've always been interested in science generally. So as a kid, uh, I grew up as an only child. So I had to obviously, like, keep myself entertained. So I read a lot of books was a really, really avid reader, mo mostly of like fantasy fantasy books, though, as a child, like those really high fantasy books. I And of course, I was of the age who of the children who grew up, grew up with Harry Potter. So uh, Harry Potter was kind of how what motivated me to learn how to read growing up. Um, Artemis Fowl. Artemis Fowl. Oh, yeah, oh, we yeah. talked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Artemis Fowl. Love it. Um, absolutely love those books. And they were supposed to make a movie of it, actually, but I don't 
They hmm. did, maybe. Not, not sure. I haven't heard about it. Anyway, so Artemis Fowl. I love those books growing up. But also things like uh, Animal Planet and the Discovery Channel. I watched a lot of that TLC with the uh, late night where they had those weird medical mystery things that are like reenactments of these people suffering from things like Lyme disease or like all these medical mysteries that are hard to diagnose. And I was like 10 or 11 and probably should have been watching. These, Traumatized. Yeah. <laughs> these are like the um, the brain-eating amoeba, like people who go swimming in, in still bodies of fresh water and they get that brain-eating amoeba and it just seems really horrible. Oh, there was one story actually I, I distinctly remember too of a guy who ate bear meat. He had hunted and killed a bear and then ate the bear. Raw or cooked? Cooked, but not cooked enough because it has is very uh, heavy uh, parasite load, I guess. Mm. And so he got like an intestinal parasite from eating Yum. undercooked bear. <laughs> yeah, so just if you're going to eat bear, please thoroughly cook it um, <clears throat> is my advice to you. But um, the other thing that really drove my, my interest in science is my dad always had a very large garden um, and had a, such a green thumb and he still has such a green thumb. It, I'm so envious of it. It makes me green with envy because he is always so successful at growing his plants and I'm always struggling to keep mine alive. But I've gotten better over the years with with practice. But definitely he just has an amazing green thumb and I would go exploring in the garden and catch lizards and feel really guilty when their tails fell off and then release them and uh, definitely lots of birds and lots of cool things in the area. And then, and I think this is true for a lot of people who, who end up having a passion in science is... And I don't remember when this happened exactly. I wish I could, but I want to I wish I could go back and remember the exact time when I realized that we were a planet in a universe that was mm-hmm. floating in space. Like Yeah. To me, I was thinking about this earlier before recording today and that must be such a pivotal moment in a child's like knowledge where they learn this for the first time that that Earth is not the entirety of existence. And in fact, that Earth is just this tiny floating rock in this infinitely vast space. Like, how that must alter a child. I don't even think it must take a while to fully conceptualize what that means. Because, you know, even if you see videos from astronauts and, and from outer space and from, you know, our visits to the moon and all of that, I think it takes, it must take quite a while for you to actually have the brain power to conceptualize all of that because I think it's it's so mind-blowing really but absolutely I remember from a young age just really enjoying the thought of space and astronauts and to me astronauts were real-life superheroes they were people who were giving everything and willing to risk their lives just for the sake of exploration or for learning more advancing human knowledge and there's not a lot of careers out there where it's it's literally people sacrificing or willing to sacrifice everything just in the name of knowledge or because science, science exactly. It's really an amazing career. But um, I remember getting an, uh, a uh, telescope for probably like my 10th or 11th birthday and like, you know, learning all this, the stars and what the constellations are and just spending, you know, my favorite, because growing up in L.A., which is, I did grow up in L.A., I did my, my undergrad up in the Bay Area at UC Santa Cruz, but I am grew up in L.A., back in L.A. for my Ph.D., but in L.A., as you might have noticed, there's no stars, really. <laughs> there's so much light pollution that it's basically satellites and planes and the moon, and that's about it. Um, there's very few stars that you can see easily, but... Uh, Whenever you go outside of L.A., so it's really striking. I always remember being a child and love leaving the city because then I would just see so many more stars and just absolutely be obsessed with with looking up at the stars and considering what's out there. Um, I remember in high school watching a video called The Pale Blue Dot, which is narrated by Carl Sagan, which is this video that kind of shows that everything, all of our existence, everything we'll ever experience in our entire lives is held on this tiny rock that is really infinitesimally small in the scheme of the universe. So I remember first seeing that video in high school and just crying <laughs> with emotion of how overwhelmed I was. Um, and I still feel that way about about science a lot of times. But anyway, I had um, a really positive experience with my major ecology and evolutionary biology as an undergrad. Um, I had some really 
really important mentors in my life who fostered my desire to pursue science as a career and encouraged me that I could be a scientist and that I had the chops. I had what it what it takes to pursue a PhD. Uh, so I'm entering my second year now. So it's really, I've really found a, a really wonderful home at UCLA and at my department. I really enjoy it. Um, and I really can't see myself doing anything else at this point in time. Like research is one of the research, <laughs> the day-to-day of research can be very tedious. I'm not going to lie. Very the a- tedious. The actual data collection, if you're not okay with doing very tedious data collection over extended periods of time in order to answer these questions, then, you know, maybe research is not for you or definitely at least have some experience with with how the data collection actually works because that part can be extremely tedious. But that never bothered me. It was never to the point of, wow, I hate doing this. It was just like, this is what I need to do to answer my question. And I still enjoy it. And I really enjoy the collaborative atmosphere that exists when working in a lab or a department. But certainly it was... uh, a lot of important people in my life kind of drove me to this point. And so I'm happy to be pursuing science. And I, I really don't see myself doing anything else. It's what gives me when I when I finished my undergrad degree and I was working retail, I call it my my come to Jesus moment because <laughs> I was no longer in school and I was working retail and I had been working retail for a year and some change at that point. And I realized that if I didn't take really big steps or important steps towards a career that I would actually enjoy, I would just be working retail for the foreseeable future. And that, though it paid the bills, did not appeal to me. I didn't think I was contributing or really getting anything out of it intellectually uh, as a retail job. And I knew that if I wanted to continue doing science, which I had always enjoyed, I had to really get my butt in gear. So that was when I started applying to labs to work. Well, actually volunteer. I didn't get paid, but um, essentially get some research experience through some labs. And that was, I landed a wonderful, not even position, but I, I landed in a lab that absolutely was wonderful in fostering my my science. And I worked, I would work like 20 hours a week unpaid on top of 40 hours a week of, of retail. So, um, you know, it was definitely I was working like seven days a week, um, but that's I that's I was happy because I felt like I was moving towards my goal and getting the research experience that I needed. So that's kind of my, you know, one two overview of how I, I ended up sort of pursuing a PhD in science. It's still an ongoing process. Every day I feel alternatively happy and terrified with the amount of work that I have to do. But, you know, baby steps. It's what I was always t- I'm always telling myself is just don't don't think of the big things. Think of the baby steps. The little what what can I accomplish today or in the next ten minutes or something. So it's it's always a work in progress, but it is progress. Progress is being made. So with that I'm gonna pass it on to our next podcast member. Kyle, take it away. We'd love to hear your story. Hey, thank you. I mean I, I- to relate to your comment about like realizing that the earth is in the center of yeah. the universe, it's wild. I <laughs> it's think I'm still terrifying. recovering from that moment. <laughs> I know. I think I am too. We're going to spend a lifetime recovering. Imagine that, that you're like nine years old. Like look at a nine-year-old kid on the street. They might be going through this like, whoa, <laughs> thing. And they, they might not ever recover and they might go to grad school. Yeah, it's true. And maybe that's part of like preteen teen angst is just the existential knowledge of like your actual place in the yeah, universe. Yeah. Maybe it's not all just high school drama. It's also a fuller understanding of yeah. existence. Yeah. It doesn't get crisis. better, but you can get employed doing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And it's called a professor. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I would say my motivations for grad school were a little bit more selfish. I. I just find myself so interested in nature and in the different symmetries that exist in the universe, which is why I went and studied physics. It's about this pursuit over what unifying themes make the universe possible, from the tiniest little quantum foam (laughs) all the way up to the biggest structures and ultimately the question of why the universe is here. And my journey through uh, academia has been a journey from every length scale in the universe, really, from the quantum foam to the Big Bang, and now mm-hmm. we're back on Earth studying biology. Can we can we address a misconception? Because sometimes people say, like, a quantum leap or, like, a quantum jump as if that's 
an enormous value, but really quantum is about as small (laughs) of a a scale as you can get. I used to lecture my friends about this at college, and they'd be like, just get over it. (laughs) You know what we mean. You don't know what I mean. (laughs) You don't understand me, mom. Although I suppose at this point, it's worth making a short point about what a PhD is. We're all PhD students. Mm -hmm. Uh, The PhD is Latin for philosophy doctor, doctor of philosophy. And this is just a holdover from the medieval nomenclature for academics. Like if you were lucky enough to hang out in a church and like study books for a long enough time, they'd give you a PhD. Mm-hmm. You like books, this is take this degree. Yeah. yeah. So if you weren't like pulling potatoes out of a field <laughs> and you could like, if you could write, you could yeah. probably be a PhD. So that was the level yeah. then. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until like in Germany somewhere in the 19th century that... Um, I think it was University of Berlin decided in order to get this final degree, you you have to contribute something to the to the canon of human knowledge. <laughs> to the understanding yeah, of human knowledge. And so this is when it really started to be like a research thing. So mm-hmm. students had to create and invent something completely new. You can't just l- take your time learning everything and not <laughs> giving something back for other yeah. people to learn. You can't just bum around campus. Yeah, <laughs> as much as we'd like to forever. <laughs> There's a lot of people still trying it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, it's worth noting the first PhD, like doctoral degree ever awarded in the U.S. was awarded at Yale. Huh. There was three PhDs awarded in 1861 to <gasps> Arthur Wright for physics, James Witten for classics, and Eugene Schuler for philosophy psychology. Wow. Never knew that. Yeah. So this whole idea of a grad student is new. It's like 150-odd years old. Mm-hmm. I think we take it for granted that there's these like people in their 20s and 30s toiling in universities, but it wasn't always that way. Mm-hmm. And and also to clarify, PhD uh, is not the same as an MD. An MD is your medical yes. doctor who is your Thank doctor you. or your surgeon. PhD, we are not <laughs> in any way, shape, or form medical professionals. We are basically people who do research and like to learn and you know and that can vary vastly across many different fields but not anything usually we're not medical doctors and so this idea of being a doctor is another holdover from this medieval thing where Mm -hmm. like all people were together so if you were like an intellectual in the like 12th century paris you would learn everything you would learn about theology learn about Mm -hmm. astronomy you would learn about Medicine, you would do it all. Maybe there just wasn't that much to know, so you could get there was less to know. I feel like, or you know, so like at what point in history could you actually know everything? I think we've clearly not in that realm because I don't know anything. Yeah, we all we all study very specific things now (laughs) to even study all of. I would caution against taking an orientalist view of the present now as having this overwhelming wealth of knowledge. I think in previous times they probably did seem – it seemed to them like they were in a time that had an overwhelming amount I'm sure. of knowledge. Yeah, so. absolutely. It makes you wonder where we're going. Yes, it does. Definitely. A little scared, to be <laughs> honest. <laughs> Some people don't believe in PhDs. And one notable person is this uh, theoretical physicist, Freeman Dyson, who was famous for his work in quantum field theory. Is that like the Dyson sphere? No? The Dyson sphere is this idea of – putting a little sphere around the sun to collect its energy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is that Freeman Dyson. Okay, it is the same Dyson. He's been around for a long time. He's okay. one of my academic heroes, if you're listening, Freeman. <laughs> um, Even though he doesn't approve of your PhD? He has many children that didn't get PhDs. He's an incredibly successful academic. He should have been awarded the Nobel Prize with uh, Feynman and Schwinger. <laughs> I know. But he he's he's one of the most pure scientists out there because he was just interested in it outright. He was working it in uh, Princeton. He is still at Princeton. Uh, he studies theoretical physics in all dimensions, you know, and anything you can do with math, he's out there doing it. And he got through part of grad school and was like, eh, this isn't for me and like got a job doing some other mathy things somewhere else. So how did you have all these heroes who, you know, Dyson being one of them, who are all physics heroes, but it's a pretty complicated topic. It's not necessarily one that most people would be 
feel welcomed into or or find you know easy to to enter as a field of of research. So, what what was kind of your how did you start to get interested in the physical the physics aspect of, of science? Well, you and I have interesting origins because I grew up in a garden center, and I was surrounded by the natural world. And my dad is also just an inspirationally genius green thumb. And so I was, I felt like I was so close to nature. Mm-hmm. And so I was always picking up books on theoretical physics. Um, that is not normal, I would like <laughs> to say. <laughs> That's not every child. That is not I every child. I did not have you friends. Special. <laughs> no, I had like one friend. That's good. You Same. always need one friend. Yeah. yeah. But I really enjoyed reading about particle physics and I enjoyed reading about like black holes and stuff. That's um, awesome. And, uh, at some point, I decided, like, I need to go to school f- to study physics. Mm-hmm. This is really fun. Um, my choice of schools was made on a boat on a surf trip north of Santa Barbara, west of Santa Barbara. Mm. And I was like just... Channel Islands? Somewhere around the Channel Islands. Yeah. And I, we were boating out of Santa Barbara Harbor. My dad had got me up. I was, like, 16 at the time. He'd woken me up before dawn. We drove to Santa Barbara from Orange County. And I came out of my nap going past this beautiful coastline. There's a little tower sticking up. And I asked him what that was. He says, that's Santa Barbara. I went there for a semester in between traveling. That's great. That's probably where I'll go. (laughs) And so two years later, when I got the letter back asking if I wanted to go, of course I said yes. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was just, I had a really beautiful time at Santa Barbara. I started... um, Yeah, you see Santa Barbara's a a beautiful campus because it's right on the coastline, like literally right on the bluffs. So that's the joke is everyone like you can finish class and go to the beach or go surfing because it's literally right down the hill, essentially. As someone who surfs mostly <laughs> and does some science, this was <laughs> an absolute dream. Ideal, yeah. I literally went to class in my board shorts so I could go <laughs> surfing afterwards. I'm not kidding. I would get texts from my and friends. And you weren't the only one, I bet. <laughs> I had some of the best advice I got at, at, at Santa Barbara was, Kyle, are you going to remember this? Homework, or are you going to remember the surf? <laughs> I remember that surf. <laughs> I remember the surf. I don't remember the homework. Yeah. <laughs> That's okay. At I don't least know. he's honest. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how much of my homework Stay I remember. Stay true from to yourself. Yeah. Um, We've all got to have hobbies outside of yes, research, too. Yes. We can't just be in the lab 24-7. That makes us crazy eccentric. <laughs> I, was a, I was a fairly freewheeling student. I studied, I tried to study everything. I studied uh, astronomy. I helped build a uh, a balloon-borne telescope. So it's a telescope on a balloon. Mm-hmm. You send into space. It's pretty primitive. Uh, it was to study the cosmic microwave background. It's like this Ooh, yeah. cosmic foam from the origins of the Big Bang. And then I studied how black holes act as seeds for galaxies. Um, and then I got super interested in biomaterials. So I studied octopus camouflage. I tried to build a, uh, a camouflaging device. Um, like the, uh, the uh, what is it, the invisibility cloak from uh, Harry Potter? I tried to build an invisibility <laughs> cloak with Raytheon. It's <laughs> like one of these defense companies. Oh, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Super top yeah, secret. You were funded yeah. by DARPA, weren't you? The department. Yeah, we were funded by DARPA. We were funded by, yeah, all sorts of shady the government. governmental <laughs> research, R&D. But so much, most of academic research comes from the Department of Defense, yes. Department of Energy. And what is DARPA again? Sorry. DARPA is Defense for? Advanced Research Projects Agency. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> That's intense. They're, Government, ooh. Yeah. The way it's described to me is they'll, they expect like maybe 10 to 20% of their projects to succeed. So most of the things mm-hmm. they fund are impossible, mm-hmm. which is kind of noble. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. But they gave us the internet. They gave us... Satellites, any modern technology probably started as a Department of Defense or just a U.S. government funded thing. And this has been true for millennia, actually. Mm -hmm. Since the Greeks, the government has been funding that kind of scholarly work. Right. Yeah. For those of you listening um, who might not know or might not be familiar with how a Ph.D. works or where our money comes from, because we don't we don't have to take out loans to for us. We're lucky enough to not have to take out loans to pursue a PhD, so we get paid to work, and that can either come in the form of TAing, so teaching, or um, funding, which 
99% of the time is some kind of governmental funding. So whether that's DARPA, the Department of Defense, um, the National Science Foundation is a government-funded mm-hmm. initiative. So is NIH, which is the National uh, Institute of Health. Health. Yeah. So almost so the government funds a huge amount of the scientific research that happens in the United States. By the proxy, economics of this is the, incredible. Uh, taxpayers. Yes. We're yeah. funded by you. Yes. Yeah, you guys are paying Thank for you. us. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, the economics of this is incredible because many people argue that most things should be run like a business. Things should be privatized, especially in the U.S. The, mm-hmm. the, the idea is like things should be private. Why is the government doing anything? But without fail, almost any like private enterprise is using technology that was at one time mm-hmm. publicly funded. Absolutely. So mad props to the grad students out there toiling. And to the taxpayers, thank you. Yes. Yeah, thank you, taxpayers. It's a nice relationship, a yes. nice symbiotic, mutually beneficial <laughs> yes. relationship. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, so I finished up my bachelor's degree, and I, as most young people do, I went traveling for a little while, fall in love, spend some money. <laughs> um, and after about a year and a half of this, you, there was some angst developing inside of me. At my job, I found myself reading my old physics textbooks. I found myself looking up research articles. Um, and so the choice to go to grad school was always in me, and I needed to return. I went to UC Irvine. I started at UC Irvine, rather, um, to study octopus camouflage again, round <laughs> two. Couldn't get enough of those little guys. Came back for more. <laughs> yeah, I came back for more. I. I gave up a lot. I had this perfect little white picket fence life in Santa Barbara, <laughs> living with a girlfriend, had an easy job that I rode my bike to past my favorite cafe. Oh, All wow. my friends are there. That sounds great. <laughs> and I still loved science more for some reason. I, and I don't regret making the switch to grad school. It's mm-hmm. a really beautiful pursuit. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I began studying octopus camouflage again. Because they're so amazing. I mean, how, how could you just not study that? And the physics of that is just so incredible. Mm-hmm. And the way I studied it was to understand the structure of the protein inside of the octopus camouflage protein. Mm-hmm. And the way you do that is with the particle accelerator. So it was like this amazing union of all things physics plus biology. Yeah. I was using a particle accelerator's X-ray beams. As the particles spin around, they shoot X-rays out. You focus that into a laser beam and look at the protein structure. And the goal was to figure out how the structure of the protein is related to the function, which is to make the psychedelic colors of an octopus. Really incredible. Yeah. Um, after a couple of years of that, I decided I needed to go try some new things in biology, apply some more equations and physics-y <laughs> things. And so I started at USC, where I am now. So fight on. <laughs> There's a uh, rivalry in this room. So two of us are UCLA and one of us is USC, which is uh, a pretty iconic yeah. <laughs> college rivalry. We're, in, we're in building a... bridges here, though. Yes. There's no rivalry in this room. No, no, no. Yeah. Once we leave the room, you know, <laughs> things change. But in the room, we're all good. Yeah. We're all about science. So it's all Science unites all, you know, even the, the toughest of rivalries. Yes. It's all about community. <laughs> yes. Which is what I study now. I study the physics of microbial communities. And... The reason we study microbial communities, like how do they get together, why do they make decisions the way they do, mm-hmm. is this that that's a really useful model organism for studying all community behavior in the in life. Mm-hmm. All things exist together, all things are connected together, mm-hmm. and this isn't just new age wishwash. <laughs> but is... okay, but but that might that's a new age wishwash because <laughs> These are things microbes, like my microbial community is, is essentially, you know, so small that a lot of people will never see yeah. one in their lifetime. So how do you explain a microbial community to someone who might never see it, if you will? Uh, a microbial, so a microbe, a normal microbe is about a 50th of the width of your hair. So just look at a piece of your hair. <laughs> so it's just out of eyesight. But these are the simplest living things. They're just little squishy bags of DNA and some proteins. <laughs> are we not also? Yeah, I mean, that sounds like me. Bags. That's how I feel yeah. most days. <laughs> a squishy bag of DNA and protein. Some days more squishy than others. <laughs> right. So all the decisions in the living world are dictated by the, how these genes turn on and off and how much they turn on and off. And 
So studying microbial communities is an easy way to look at decision-making in life because you can play with the DNA so easily and you can just do experiments with microbes so quickly. You can take out entire parts of their genome and see how they behave. You can add different species and see how different species fight with each other and look at inter-kingdom fights with like funguses and plants. Uh, and we, as people, we really depend on the bacteria. So much of our own bodies are dedicated to bacterial life. Mm -hmm. We depend on them and life depends on them. Mm -hmm. Here, just a quick factoid. There's a, a type of cockroach under its wings, it has between four <laughs> Raquel is gagging. You can't see this. <laughs> Raquel has left the room. She doesn't like the cockroaches. <laughs> she didn't like that At one. the mention of the word cockroach, <laughs> my soul left my body. <laughs> <laughs> but continue, Kyle. So these cockroaches have between four and 40 different species of bacteria under their wings. Mm -hmm. that And the bacteria help, help them survive. They like sort of just do little tasks for them, like huh. digesting food. And if you remove any one of these bacteria, the cockroach will die. Mm -hmm. Cockroach are tenacious creatures. I'll give them that. They are fascinating. But maybe they're so tenacious durable. because they have such a diverse microbial yeah. bacterial community mm -hmm. helping and supporting them. Could be. You know, could be. So we, we really depend on the microbial communities around us. On a, in a more like intellectual, like grandiose picture, I'm interested in using the math that we use to model the communities to look at our own communities. Like in Los Angeles, mm -hmm. how how does gentrification happen? Mm -hmm. Is it a bottom-up thing where one person buys a block or is it a top-down thing where there's like some sort of predatory development going on? Or how do uh, different neighborhoods segregate? How, how does like traffic on the 10 transmit people and stuff around the city. Mm -hmm. And all of this can start in a little Petri dish in a lab by applying some simple physics equations and just looking at microbes growing and observing it. Mm -hmm. So it's this beautiful union between theoretical physics and experimental biology in mm -hmm. order to understand the secrets of community and life. Mm -hmm. And at, at these microbial communities, even though they're tiny and you know they might be from different kingdoms or different lineages and, and very unrelated, the like our you know city like Los Angeles, there's a lot of communicating that's happening between these individuals and between these species and transfer or, uh, transferring of nutrients or you know food sources and so it's it's a very active, thriving and constantly changing landscape just at a very small scale. So very much like Los Angeles or cities are often described as living, breathing organisms because there's you know. Transferring of information, transferring of materials, people moving back and forth. It's the same at the microbial community level. And so there's a lot of similarities yeah. or parallels you can And draw. this has real uh, environmental implications in how we sort of grow as a civilization. How are people going to manage their resources in a way that's effective, in a way that's compassionate, and in a way that we can all grow in? And I think that looking at how other living things grow and thrive will reflect positively on how we can develop our own communities and cities in the future. I think that's super really cool. Yeah, I love yeah. it. I love the idea of scaling from the absolutely tiny to something that we interact with in every aspect of our lives in like the greater Los Angeles area. So yeah. very cool. Raquel, I think it is your time to shine. Yeah. Blow us away with your science. <laughs> My story. I love it. So I think one thing that'll be, you'll notice as being common with all three of our stories is this sense of wonder, <laughs> wonder of the universe and yes. how it works and how things operate on a large and small scale from the time we were kids. Yeah. If so, you're not curious, if you're not asking yeah. questions, it's going to be hard to be a, a scientist. scientist. Yes. So my name is Raquel Shanique Natalie Guthrie. For those of you who have seen the S on my abstracts and presentations and I refuse to tell you what the S is, now you know. It's on record. You can play it back. That's how you can sell it to your friends. Listen. You need to listen to my <laughs> podcast. Because, secret. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm a second year graduate student at UCLA in the Molecular, Cellular, and Integrative Physiology PhD program. It's not a department, but we have about 150 faculty associated with our program, which is kind of unique. 
Um, this is ranges from like bioengineering to cardiology and neuroscience. And it's part of the reason why I chose the program because I was pretty scatterbrained coming in <laughs> as a graduate student, still am. I was interested in a lot of different stuff and I just wanted to be able to have freedom to play around when I first came in before choosing a lab. So I don't really remember ever not being interested in science. When I was a baby, my mom used to take me to class with her when she was teaching math and biology in Jamaica. So maybe she started it. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> but Thanks, Mom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she did get me my first microscope when I was about six years old. I had to ask her exactly how old I was because I don't ever remember <laughs> not having a microscope. And I used Also to like... unusual. That's not every child, right? <laughs> Kyle is into yeah, yeah. his physics Books. reading and you had a microscope and you before had a you... telescope <laughs> I did yeah that's true yeah so I used to like take things from outside bugs and uh, leaves and whatever parts of plants I could find and look at them under the scope and just be like what's going on <laughs> water done... samples from the pond I've done the same thing <laughs> yeah so I used to also just watch a ton of animal planet mm-hmm. it was on the tv nonstop. And thankfully, my family, like, never tried to stop me or anything. <laughs> they just let me go I don't want to learn anymore about cheetahs. <laughs> and they the did used to them. make fun of me, but it wasn't in, like, a don't do this anymore, Raquel. Yeah. It was just like, this is kind of cute. Let's let her go <laughs> with it. So I was just really curious about nature and the world. And I don't know, I was constantly absorbing information about my surroundings and animals. I wanted to be a vet for a little while. Mm-hmm. Also considered yeah. that as a career. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I was just always interested in that. And I was homeschooled through third and fourth grade-ish. My mom started her own school around that time when I was in the fourth grade. And so I was really accustomed to kind of leading my own learning. I would, you know, study all of the stuff that I needed to. My mom was a math teacher, so she made me do math. I didn't really (laughs) want to do math. But I would focus a lot more on, like, the biology side of things, the science side. And the school wasn't doing so well. So my mom put me in a private school. She closed down her school, and I went to private school for sixth grade. And then I started public school in the seventh grade, and I was there until I graduated and went off to college. Mm -hmm. So the transition from being sort of self-led in my learning to going to public school was pretty hard. This was where I first became exposed to, like, being wrong has consequences and it will follow you. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I still did pretty well, but it was just, I I didn't like the idea that these scores and grades sort of became a part of your academic identity and followed you wherever you went. And it's it's almost like because they're on a transcript that then that's the, when... Going forward yeah. in your life, that's the first people people like thing people look at when they're yeah. judging you, right? Mm-hmm. It, it they can make a decision about how you are as a mm-hmm. student or a scientist or a person just based on what numbers on from your transcript, yeah. and that's upsetting. It's yeah. like, wait a minute, you should get to know me as yeah. a person, not just my my ability to take a standardized test or yeah. something. So. And I think that's sort of a symptom of. There are so many students trying to get into so many programs, Mm -hmm. and so you have to find some way. So I understand where it comes from. Mm -hmm. You have to find a a standardized way of evaluating large amounts of people. So conceptually, it makes sense to look at things like that. But I I don't like it. (laughs) I don't like it then. I don't like it now. No, that's fair. (laughs) And for the students listening, uh, another piece of advice given to me was you should if you have, like, a perfect 4.0 GPA coming out of college or something, like, what were you doing? <laughs> like, were you actually doing anything? You were studying a lot, that's sure, but, yeah. like, doing work, like, really yeah. getting your hands dirty in something. Mm-hmm. And that yeah. counts. So mm-hmm. maybe maybe that little lower GPA is because you were doing something, and you need to highlight that something. Yeah. Yeah, so it was like the – it switched from, like, oh, I got this wrong – the mentality of it from being, okay, I need to focus more on that area to being, oh, I'm a little bit afraid of getting things wrong now because, of it, you know, it follows you. Which, that totally makes sense. Like, growing, like, having been in, never being homeschooled, but growing up through, you know, the, the normal public school and then mm-hmm. private school institution is, so, especially teaching freshmen now, like, it still carries over with you even today. Like, no one wants to raise their hand and say something if they might not be right. Yeah. Most people, when they're volunteering an answer, it's because they're very, very certain sure, that they're right. Be right yeah. Because no one, it feels bad to be wrong or it feels yeah. like not, it feels like you're being judged or it's a mark against you rather than like, oh, 
you know, this is something that I should focus on going forward. And I'm glad I cleared up where I was misunderstanding or confused about a topic. Yeah. So it's, it's it's such a hard thing to get over is that fear of being wrong or saying the wrong thing. Or... Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I started school with the opposite of imposter syndrome. Which <laughs> Confidence. Again, think... Hubris. It was like, <laughs> it wasn't even hubris. It was like, not like I didn't like realize who I was, like what was going on. Mm -hmm. It was like non, it was like no self-awareness uh, disease. Yes. So I just put my hand up and try to like answer stuff. But I had no self-awareness of like, mm. I could be completely full of shit right now. <laughs> I just would go for it. But that's such a, I think that's, I. you need one of those, that's such a good yeah. dynamic to have it someone is. like that because that fosters a lot more discussion, mm -hmm. I think, than just everyone being right all the time. You're like, okay, well, clearly you get it. So yeah. like, let's move. It's not as uh, stimulating of a conversation. Yeah. I think things would be fairly boring if we were right 100% of the time. Mm -hmm. You know, they're, they're, you shouldn't be afraid to be wrong or mm -hmm. to ask questions. And mm -hmm. that's really what, being a, t a PhD is about is about asking questions. Mm -hmm. So, growing up, you know, through high school, I didn't really like math and chemistry and physics. I didn't even take physics in high school, but math and chemistry, I really, really struggled. But I did have really great teachers, and they would stay after school with me and work with me on things that I was having trouble with. So, you know, growing up, I don't think any one thing started me down the path or me. Maybe even any 100 things <laughs> started me down the path to where I am now. It's just I've always been interested and curious in, in science-related topics, and that the support that could allow me to grow as a scientist has thankfully always been there. So right now what I'm studying is the role of sleep in learning and memory. So we're interested in answering questions related to the biology of the brain during sleep and how this can affect learning and memory. So I left IU, Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. Ooh, ooh, Hoosiers, <laughs> we don't know what that actually is. Yeah. What is a Hoosier? <laughs> if one of the listens, listeners know, please, you know, tell us. <laughs> but uh, I got my bachelor's in microbiology from Indiana University, and I was really interested in gut-brain axis interactions. Now they call the enteric nervous system, which is the control center of your gut, the second brain. And this is because it can function completely independently of your central nervous system, which is made up of your brain and your spinal cord. So you can sever the spinal cord, that the connections that go to your gut, and it'll still function perfectly fine without control of your, your brain. So it also contains multitudes of <laughs> microbes. <laughs> nice look. Good yeah, job. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and there are about 10 times as many microbes in your gut or and on your body than human cells. So I had this like boring question of what the heck are they all doing there? And I think anyone who studies the microbiome, which is the microbes and the compounds they produce, also has this boring question in their mind. So similar to like the microbial community that, yeah. that Kyle studies, mm -hmm. you're interested you were interested in looking at what is there, like what are these species or what organisms are existing in the gut that yeah. are these tiny microbes, these tiny little jelly like protein filled dna filled bags Organisms, yeah. <laughs> yeah and how are they interacting and how are they affecting the humans that they're living in concert with mm -hmm. and what are they eating or producing all those sorts of things yep so i had listened to this podcast where they had reported findings about there was a graduate student trekking around in the forest looking for bear feces, which is a fancy scientific term for poop. Yes. They were looking for brown bear poop, and they were studying the microbiome, the microbes and the compounds in the poop, and how it changed. What they found is that it changed between when the bear was active in the summer and when it was hibernating. And that just completely blew my mind. I was like, I have to be a part of these studies. I don't know if I'm going to be studying bear feces, but I need to be doing something <laughs> along those lines. <laughs> so I thought maybe microbes could be doing things that help protect us as much as or even more so than they do things that hurt us. And I wanted to know if this could even be on a psychological level. And lo and behold, research in the past few decades has shown that serotonin, which is one of the molecules that are intimately tied to mood and behavior, the most of the body's serotonin is produced in the gut, and 
there are microbes in your gut that contribute to that production. So I became fascinated with psychological stress and resilience, and this is ultimately why I ended up studying sleep in kind of (laughs) direct and indirect ways. The indirect way is that I really wanted to study the gut microbiota because of my interest in resilience and my prior exposure to studying microbiology. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering how the gut microbiome could be helping us. And the direct way was that when I came to UCLA, hoping to work with a very specific person, it ended up that she wasn't accepting graduate students. So this is something that you'll find um, when you go to graduate school, if you decide to go to graduate school. Sometimes if you want to work with a specific person, there can be a number of reasons why it's not a appropriate fit. Mm-hmm. Either it's like a funding issue because these people have to have money to be able to hire you yep. pretty much. Is a, a apprenticeship is sort of what it is. And also sometimes you don't really mesh well in terms of leadership style. Absolutely. I mean, that's the big difference, I think, between applying to an undergrad institution and applying to a graduate institution is in applying to grad school, it's much more about who do you want to work with um, and are you a good fit together? Is their mentorship style going to suit how you are as a you know, researcher or a worker or a student. So that is a, that plays a much, much larger role because you're going to be working with them for the duration of your graduate degree. Um, so if you don't get along, it's... That's critically important. Yeah. yeah. So very different from what you would consider when applying to an undergrad institution. Yeah. Or even if, you know, you're considering working a job, like maybe your boss is someone that you don't interact with on a daily basis. That's not necessarily the case as a graduate student. You're kind of tied to this person for the duration of your career, really, because you need them beyond just after getting your PhD. Definitely. So I came wanting to work with a specific person, and she wasn't accepting students, and I had no plan B (laughs) because I was smart. (laughs) But I did some exploring, and I took some people's advice, and I realized that I had more options than I had limited myself to in coming here in terms of answering these questions about resilience and stress. Mm -hmm. So... In the end, sleep overtook everything, (laughs) and I've also shifted more towards understanding, um, learning the memory aspects. So our lab does study uh, maladaptive responses to stress, maladaptive being characteristics of sleep after a stress exposure that prevent you from properly adjusting to your environment. So one way to think about this is if someone who was overseas in Iraq gets accustomed to hearing helicopters that um, have guns, will be shooting at them. The sound of a helicopter becomes associated with danger and potentially death. And they come here, they hear hear a helicopter, they come home, it might be a newscopter or something, Mm -hmm. but they can't recontextualize that they are now in a safe environment. And it turns out that research has shown that there are different characteristics of sleep that are associated with the solidification of those memories that just can't be undone or restructured. So that's one area of research in our lab, but we also study learning and insight. So that's where I've shifted my focus to, is trying to understand the learning aspect of it that could confer resilience. So, I mean, in my own case, the times when I've felt my most optimistic and energetic and empowered is when I'm learning, even if I'm, like, struggling with something. So... When I'm creating and synthesizing information, that's really what a PhD student does. Yes. We synthesize large amounts of information into a new theory that can be turned into a hypothesis and then tested. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And so that's when I'm most confident is when I'm doing those things. That's so, when it feels good is when, yeah. like, even if you're struggling with it, if, if that's what we all enjoy is we're not only scientists, but we're still really, really learning so much. Mm -hmm. We're intaking, we're taking in so much material to be able to answer these questions. And that feels good to be learning something new or to learn a new technique or method or, you know, another piece of the puzzle about your study system. It kind of falls into place when you read this paper. It's, It's a lot, it's a big part of being a grad student is like taking in all this information and then Kind of lining it up in your head and being like, okay, how am I going to apply this to what I want to do? Yeah. Storytelling. Storytelling with evidence. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really great great way of describing it. So sleep has been shown to play a role in this. 
And that's really what my focus has been. And I also just really love naps. So (laughs) it was a great fit. But I love this because it's like, you know, as students, if you're a student listening, whether you're in high school or undergrad or even a grad student, um, you know, they always say before, you know, when you're reviewing material for an exam, make sure you get enough sleep because your brain, if you get enough sleep, that helps your brain solidify what you've learned so that you can recall it later for a test. So if you're pulling an all-nighter and you're cramming and you're getting like two hours of sleep... Mm It's it's proven that your brain is just not as capable of, of stashing those yeah. memories and then recalling them later. Yeah. So really, really important. Yeah, you might be able to recall for a short period of time, but it's definitely not going to go into your long-term memory where mm-hmm. you're going to remember it for more than just a day past when you were mm-hmm. cramming all of that in. I stayed up all night for a final exam, um, electrodynamics. And you passed undergrad. it with flying colors. I passed it. I got an <laughs> A in that class after the professor told me I would fail. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're out there... The final laugh is on me because I don't remember anything. I stayed up all night, passed the test, immediately forgot everything. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So bringing the concept back to we're shifting our idea of how sleep plays a role in health and in everyday life. Mm -hmm. And it's Right now, it's overlooked in the biomedical community, but that's changing the more we learn about it. So, And you're I'm, helping to change that by researching it and yeah. bringing this to people's attention. Like, yeah. that's the, a big part of it is you – it, because it is underrepresented, uh, yeah. underrepresented, you in researching it are going to bring more light to the topic. Yep. The more we know, the better. Yes. So that's, that's where I'm at. And I think that's kind of a mentality that we all have as grad students is I, I find myself falling into this trap of – I want to learn everything. I want to learn how to do all the things. I want to learn, you know, how to do this technique and that technique. And I could ask this question. And we almost, I, I, I don't know, I sometimes I feel like I want to learn too much. Yeah. <laughs> and it's hard to like rein it, it in and direct yourself in a direction that uh, is productive for actually accomplishing your research in yeah. a timely manner. But I mean, that's, you know, I think this would be a nice place to kind of explain. Obviously, we're driven individuals and we we like asking questions, but that's, you know, if all of us feel like we have some purpose, like we're deriving some kind of sense of purpose and some kind of sense of of accomplishment in, in doing or pursuing a PhD. But I think many of those motivations are why we also decided to come together and do this podcast. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it was kind of a lengthy process in in getting this podcast together, but that was intentional. Like I definitely wanted to bring together a group of people where not only was the conversation engaging and I like them as people, but we have this idea of we want to be able to communicate science. And, and in our everyday lives, most of the people we interact with at work are other scientists or other people in our department. So like this is one of the things that we talked about when we were first putting this together is like, how often do we talk to people from other departments, Mm. you know, in our day to day? Yeah. Very rarely. Yeah. It's very easy to get in your community, in your bubble, that is your department and just talk to people who know what you're researching or, Mm. you know, who are your friends. But it's so interesting and engaging to kind of spread, you know, your wings a little bit and, and experience and see what other people are doing because it's so interesting and so fascinating. And there's so much research that's just being done in the greater Los Angeles area, not, you know, to mention, you know, the entire country and the entire world. So we love talking about science and we love Love learning about cool (laughs) science. And so we kind of wanted to take our passion for science and our excitement about it and also our, our perspective as graduate students, people who don't have these real solid careers established yet, right? So just because we get a PhD is not at all a guarantee that we'll end up being professors in academia. In fact, it's the statistics are against us. Yes, they are. Uh, <laughs> I think it's less than one in five students will become a professor. Yeah. Like it's PhD students. Yes. It's a tough process. It's very competitive. And a lot of people leave for a multitude of reasons. Mm-hmm. It's not always just because, you know, it's a competitive job market. There's a lot of reasons that can lead to people leaving academia or pursuing a different career outside of academia. But certainly... The other 80% are starting podcasts. Yes. <laughs> but we're see we we got the jump on them. We are still in grad school and starting a podcast. So, you know, we're just All our the bases options are covered. Yeah. <laughs> That's how competitive the market is. <laughs> got to start now. Yeah. <laughs> got to start before we're even done. So, you know, 
just in case that that science career doesn't take off, I have some <laughs> podcast <laughs> experience you can put in my back pocket. Yeah. No, but I mean, it really is uh, a fun way to get together and talk about um, and talk about science. But also in a way like we when we're talking to our friends about science or when we're talking to each other about science, those kinds of discussions are maybe different than what we would have if we were talking to our family members or our friends who are outside of research about science, right? And because we have the passion to talk about science, we thought what better kind of format or venue to explain science and talk about the things that we think are cool that maybe, you know, those of you listening might not have been exposed to otherwise or might not have come across in your day to day. Um, So we're kind of your secret in into the scientific community. So you can rely on us to kind of bring things to your attention or uh, talk about things that maybe otherwise you would not encounter in your day to day life because, you know, you don't follow obscure scientists on Twitter <laughs> is the long and short of it. Yeah. Well, so many stories in science, either on podcasts or in magazines, are told by journalists. So these are stories that journalists find interesting. But what science stories do scientists find interesting? Mm-hmm. These mm-hmm. are not the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think one important aspect of being a scientist is being able to effectively communicate because it doesn't matter how brilliant your finding is if no one can understand it. Right. So I think this is also a really great exercise for us. Like we are all passionate about science and science communication as well. But it's also a good practice for us because we're not professional communicators. But we're, we're going to get there and we're all on that journey together, us three in this room and with you as our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. And that's hopefully, I mean, so hopefully now audience, you kind of understand where we're coming from. We're, you know, not only do we like talking about science, but we want to connect with you and we want there to be this dialogue back and forth between you, the listeners, and us, the graduate student researchers. So, you know, this is not, you know, just us three talking in a room. It's us talking to all of you who are listening. So definitely, you know, make sure to, if you have, if you listen to a topic and you're like, wow, that was really cool, but I want to know more, like, what can I read? Or, like, what were you referencing? Um, Definitely, you know, this is a two-way street. So ask us questions. And, you know, the questions you ask might open up a whole new area that even we hadn't, like, looked into Mm -hmm. previously as much before. So we want your questions. Hopefully the information or the kind of topics that we provide to you only stimulate your own curiosity to go forth and, and learn more about all of these topics. But... We're the bartenders. You come to our barn. <laughs> yeah. We'll make you a drink. What yeah. do you want? Yeah, exactly. We're happy to cater to your interests. Yes. So let us know. We have uh, some social media accounts. So we have a Twitter account, um, a Facebook, Instagram. Um, Insufficient Facts is the name of our podcast. It's been a while since I said that name about the beginning of the podcast. So I'll throw that in again just in case you forgot. Yeah. Um, but definitely feel free to contact us. We're going to wrap it up today that's about the end of our time but we really thank you for joining us today and we look forward to talking to you next week with some exciting topics yeah so we'll see you well actually you'll hear us Mm -hmm. and we'll hopefully see you we'd like to see you yeah (laughs) here maybe not dms like (laughs) public forums of conversation are encouraged but we will uh contact you or be in dialogue with you until we have this conversation again next week yeah okay Thank you for joining us. That's our sign-off. This has been Christian, Raquel, and Kyle. Thanks. Hi, I'm Christian, and thank you for joining us today on Insufficient Facts. If you love science like we do, then we invite you to join our exclusive Fact Finders Club. As a Fact Finder, you will get access to suggested readings, our notes on the show topics, blogs that take you behind the scenes of our lives as scientists, and access to a Finder's exclusive chat space that includes Q&As with the team and the ability to submit questions and topics for future episodes. By joining, not only do you support the show and the panelists, but you'll gain access to resources and bonus extras that we don't release anywhere else. And you'll receive a merch pack that includes our official enamel pin, show art sticker, and thank you card. To join, visit our website, insufficientfacts.com. If you're listening to this, you're one of many lucky reporters about to get the scoop of the century. You're welcome. Look, you all know who I am. This is your resident supervillain coming at you from an undisclosed location. And I think it's time everyone got a chance to hear my side of the story, sans news propaganda, don't you? 
I was 16 when I had the first panic attack that I can remember. You definitely don't see them coming, and you in no way, shape, or form asked for it. It closes up your chest, convinces you there's not an ounce of oxygen in the room. Your vision tunnels in. Everything sounds far away. Swell, um... Hey, 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 hey. You okay? It's okay. I'm right here. Just breathe. Do you want me to turn this off? See? I told you it was definitely me that caused it, not some freak accident. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that now. And? And that was so cool!